The number of responsibilities and opportunities involved when starting a business or becoming a leader within an organization can overwhelm the best of us. It certainly overwhelms David and Matthew. Join the two hosts as they interview successful leaders about their journey to leadership, including victories, failures, and realizations. This is Like It's Your Job, a podcast from TSG Publishing. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Like It's Your Job, a podcast for entrepreneurs, business owners, and business leaders, hearing from others who have built and sold their companies and realized their professional goals. I'm David Shields. I'm principal of Shields Legal Group and have almost 10 years of experience representing businesses in their growth and exit phases. And I'm here with my co-host, Matt Shields. Hi, everybody. Matt Shields here, Chief Investment Officer of our private equity fund, making direct investments in small and medium-sized businesses. We have a, We have a really great topic today. Really great topic today. Yes, today it's my pleasure, and I know Matt's pleasure, to introduce Brian Hong, CEO and co-founder of Survivor. Survivor is a public benefit corporation, very cool, dedicated to improving public safety. While completing his bachelor's degree in software engineering, Brian specialized in entrepreneurship and co-founded a VRAR production studio called Emosis. That later became Survivor. Today, Brian oversees a growing operation as Survivor's VR law enforcement training simulator serves communities in eight states and counting. Welcome, Brian. Thanks for having me. Good to have you on, Brian. So today, um, we have a very cool topic, one that I know is at the top of everybody's mind, uh, which is how do you take a company from no revenue to paying customers? And there's no better uh, person that we know of right now to talk about that topic then Brian. So Brian, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, Survivor. Hey everyone, my name is Brian Hong. I'm CEO of Survivor. Uh, I am a first generation uh, Vietnamese American, uh, born and raised here in Texas and Dallas specifically, by the way. Uh, and you know, I, I went to school for for software engineering. I was always into uh, to science and, and technology and, and how this could impact a human lives at scale. Uh, when I was studying engineering. I decided to specialize in emerging technologies like AI and VR. Uh, I took an interest in, in entrepreneurship. Like I, I just walked into the building one day and, and said, uh, hey, I have some, you know, what, what is the startup thing uh, <laughs> you guys are talking about? As any good entrepreneur would, just walk into a door that's open. Yeah, and walking into that door ended up changing my life and, and setting me on, on this direction. So I'm really glad I did. But, you know, in the, I think I learned best by by doing. And so when we when I started uh, my first company in uh, 2016, I actually, we, we did not intend for it to be a business. We had no strategy or business plan whatsoever. My co-founder and I were just like, well, we both like VR stuff. Let's just build things, put it out there and see what happens. We just wanted to have fun. And only eventually did we decide, you know what, it would be kind of cool if this did turn to a business. So we did VR and AR production and consulting for a couple of years and eventually came across a retired police officer. And, you know, long story, really, really short, uh, we discovered uh, current issues with police training and how we believe virtual reality can impact that. And Survivor was born. That's great. So tell us a little bit about what um, Survivor does. 
Yeah, so Survivor specializes in virtual reality law enforcement training. It, you can imagine that you are a police officer, you put on a VR headset, and you're suddenly immersed in a completely different world. Keep in mind, if you haven't used VR before, it's like it's like putting on a headset and you're suddenly in a matrix. Or, you know, I, I can throw you anywhere. I can put you on Mars, in the middle of a jungle, at the bottom of the sea. Uh, and, you know, what we're doing here is we can put you in any kind of law enforcement call to service, be it a traffic stop, a domestic violence situation, a school shooter. And the intent here is to give you as many training repetitions as possible in realistic high pressure environments. After using this training for a prolonged period of time, we want officers to be more confident and their skills and in unpredictable situations. That way they make fewer mistakes and everybody can go home at night. And that's why we exist. We want to make communities safer. That's excellent. I mean, there's no, there's real no better mission and it's obviously incredibly timely. So um, thank you for that. Um, I'm, I'm interested, I, I noticed that it's a, um, that Survivor is a public benefit corporation. Tell me about that, the decision to make it a public benefit corporation. And if you wanna uh, tell our, our listeners, you know, 20 or 30 seconds about what a PBC is, that'd be great. Yeah, so a, a PBC is a relatively new uh, type of corporation. And we we decided to become a, a PBC because we wanted to make it very clear to all stakeholders, which uh, by stakeholder, I, I consider that to include uh, our leadership, our team, our advisors, investors, customers too. Uh, we want to to establish a message and remind them that every decision that we make must consider our company's core public benefit mission, which is actually defined in the company documents. Um, and so we everything that we do should consider that mission and we should avoid compromising that when when running and growing the business it, it it serves as you know a central message and we we take that that very seriously running this kind of company like we will not hire anybody who who thinks that they can just make any say uh product decision without considering the best interests of of uh the the civilians involved the law enforcement involved uh, you know, I, I tell the the engineering team sometimes, like, hey, what you're building can literally kill people. And it, it serves as as a reminder that they need to take this seriously. We are here for for a reason. Yes, we're a business. Yes, there needs to be unit economics and profit and all that great stuff. But we're here to make communities safer. And that's a big responsibility. Uh, everyone, uh, many people out there today are, are legitimately scared of law enforcement and many law enforcement officers are also scared about uh, leaving for a shift one day and not coming back home to their families. So this is why we decided to become a PBC is we we want to to make it clear to everybody that you know even as we become successful and as we grow you cannot forget the core reason that we started this company it's to make people safer and as soon as we compromise that for something else, we are doomed as a company. Yep, and we're gonna talk about some frameworks and some some real life use cases that that Brian's been a part of. But before we really get into the, the main part of the conversation, 
Brian, I want to kick us off with the quote that you provided us. And that is a, a quote by Steve Jobs. He is a uh, he is a factory of quotes. He just manufactures them and prints them. And that is, you can't connect the dots looking forward. You can only connect them looking backwards. So you have to trust that the dots will somehow connect in your future. And why did you choose this quote, Brian? Well, it, it comes off as kind of cliche at first, but it's meaningful to me uh, because oftentimes... Uh, people are too afraid to take a leap, which can mean a lot of different things. Um, but usually the the risk and uncertainty involved uh, can be paralyzing. Um, and, and to be fair, I don't think that the leap is always appropriate, uh, at least maybe not immediately. Um, you know, you have to consider your personal circumstances and lifestyle first. You know, you have a family, debt to pay off, whatever it is. Um, but if you feel that it is appropriate now or you just don't care and you insist on doing it anyway, uh, it, it's really important to trust in your ability to figure things out along the way. Um, you, sh you need to accept that you will have failures on the way and you can lose battles as long as you learn from them and eventually win the war. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's important that when everything around you is uncertain, the one thing that can't be is, is your trust in yourself. And that has carried me through countless uh, challenges uh, throughout the years. Yeah, you know, that this that that explanation resonates with me. My my grandfather used to say, begin, the rest is easy. And, <laughs> you know, that's uh, really what he was trying to say is you have to take that first step in order to have any idea what the next step is going to be. And if you wait too long and plan too much, you're probably never going to begin, right? Beginning is the hardest part. Taking that leap, to use your words, is, uh, is an important step that every entrepreneur will have at some point in their journey. And they'll probably have it multiple times, let's be honest, because, you know, there's, there's risk in every decision that gets made and they, they have to, you know, have confidence in themselves and their ability to adapt and react. Right. Yeah. And I'm not going to say that you can just lean on uh, on destiny or, or anything like that. I mean, <laughs> you, you still got to put work into it, but yeah. you have to trust that that you're going to have the discipline to approach this and to get back on your feet when things go wrong. And eventually uh, you know, it, there will be ups and downs, but it should be a gradual upward slope. And you can look back and see how all of your mistakes and all of your setbacks ended up actually helping you. It, it doesn't seem... Uh, obvious or funny in a moment um, all the time, but eventually you'll be able to look back and and appreciate uh, what that did for you on your journey. But when it happens, you just have to keep powering forward as you are able to. Yep, absolutely. So Brian, um, it sounds like a theme of your uh, podcast and, and maybe a, a theme of your professional life has been trust. And I'm, I'm interested, when you have an idea, uh, and I want you to talk a lot about how um, Survivor came into being. But when you have an idea, what kind of um, things do you do you do when you're picking a co-founder and somebody to help you lead and uh, actualize idea? And how does trust play into that? Yeah, that's a, a good question. Um, I will open by saying that uh, my case with my co-founder is very rare, I think. I think when we first started working together officially as uh, co-founders, we had known each other for max one to two months, which you sh I would never tell anybody to do that. It 
almost certainly that that's probably not going to go well. Uh, this is a time that that this is a process you, you can't rush. So, uh, so my case is very unusual. I just got very lucky uh, that this worked out really well, despite just jumping in with a guy I just met. But when you think about choosing a, a co-founder from a general high level, there are two essential pillars to building a business. You're either you're building and you're selling. And you need to figure out first which one you're better at and then find a co-founder to ideally compliment you on the other pillar. Uh, so, you know, some other things to look for uh, when you're finding a co-founder uh, one is ideally you've worked with them before um, because that it's kind of like a, a no risk free trial and uh, you know learning how somebody thinks and and works and works with you in particular as well because I've I've seen so many co-founders end up fighting and and leaving the company oftentimes it's an ego issue so if you've worked with them in some way before that would help de-risk the relationship here. Track record is obviously important, but they, they you have to also make sure that they're hungry and fully committed to the long haul, which is often years. Uh, so you you want to make sure that they, they have the right experience, but sometimes that doesn't necessarily translate to to being as active of a co-founder uh, as as you want them to. Does that does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you you need to ensure that um, you it, a it's a true partnership, right? So walking into walking into the business on even playing field financially, uh, in you know from the equity side, I think is is really important. It eliminates a lot of the common pitfalls you see in partnerships where there's some sort of jealousy or disincentivization. There's some sort of jealousy or you know disincentive to to work to build the business. And, and, but you also need to make sure that the skill sets are different, right? I mean, I, I have a heavy finance background. I would never want to bring on a CFO as a co-founder, right? right. Because I, I can cover that off. And that necessitates that there are gaps elsewhere that the business needs and skill set that neither one of us will be able to address. Right. Yeah. So they they should complement your skills and, and not just be a, a replica exactly. of, of yourself. And, you know, I... I mean, other other standard things you look for. Obviously, you you want to make sure they're they're results oriented, they're disciplined. Uh, you need to share the same vision for the future, so that down the line you don't end up clashing. So there needs to be a lot of transparency and agreement there. Sometimes, if if you're able to find references that could be helpful, especially if you haven't known the person for as long as you would like to. But in general, this is a very critical process. You should take your time. Don't rush it. Take the extra meeting. Sleep on it. Uh, don't don't rush. You, you wouldn't rush into a marriage, right? So don't rush into a co-founding relationship either. And you know, to um, David's point earlier, it's incredibly important that that you're able to trust them with everything. So integrity is probably the most important thing uh, on the list that I can point out. Without integrity, I mean, nothing else matters. You have to be able to step away from the business and trust that it's in good hands with your co-founder. You have to trust that your co-founder can manage relationships uh, with other important stakeholders if needed. Like this, this is very much a huge partner in in your life. So just as again, you would 
be very careful with who you pick. You know, for example, as a spouse, you need to be really important. I mean, really uh, uh, careful with who you choose as a co-founder, and, and trust is fundamentally in the middle of all that. How important have you found the personal situation of co-founders to be? I mean, does is one that has kids and another that doesn't? Does that cause strife? Um, you know, obviously the professional relationship has in and of itself integrity, but the professional relationship doesn't exist in a vacuum, right? There's personal circumstances, be it a, a sick parent or a large amount of debt or, like I said, children. Have you found that to be, you know, an important factor in the consideration? It's critical to discuss it, yes. Uh, startups are very demanding and you have to make sure that you're in the right headspace and stage of life to do it in. And I, I think one thing that helps is defining expectations in, in a more results-oriented way. So it's it's not really time in a seat that matters. I think that's a vanity metric. It's, it's more like what results do you expect from each person? And if you are able to define that well, then at that point, it's either you deliver or you don't. And I, I think it, it is, it's better to be very forward and transparent about this to begin with, because again, you don't want the case uh, to be where, you know, a year later, you're, you're not really getting the, the commitment from your co-founder that, that you wish you would, because they're, they're unable to, to meet expectations that, that you wanted, but you didn't necessarily convey, or maybe you, you thought you trusted that everything will end up okay. You, you should never do that. Anything you could possibly define earlier on, especially if it's on paper, like in writing, the, the better. So it, it is important to discuss it, but also, you know, life does happen too. If, if you're in the middle of, of running your company and uh, let's say your co-founder usually does well, but they, they kind of enter a, uh, I don't know, a slump. I think it's, it's usually helpful if you have some understanding of, of their personal circumstances and that yeah, way you can approach it from, uh, yeah, approach it from a more empathetic or sympathetic mm -hmm. uh, point of view and not like, what happened? Why are you not delivering to like, hey man, what's up? How's your family? Mm -hmm. it, th that That's usually a much better approach and it helps people open up. It, you, you're not outright accusing anyone of anything. You can approach it. Uh, by listening and offering help, I, I think that's the better way to to resolve conflict here. Well, and that's and that is the essence of a true partnership, right? It, you have to be able to come to the table looking for solutions and not, you know, pointing a finger and laying blame on on your partner, right? Right. Everybody wants to be successful at the end of the day. Everybody is is happy when it's successful. So that's that's good. So let's you you have your perfect co-founder now. Uh, Survivor is thriving. Uh, but how did you um, validate the market fit for Survivor, for the product that you, you brought to the market? I'll approach this from uh, a higher level as, so in using a, a framework uh, that I think anyone could use. So That would be um, great. My, uh, my managing director uh, from Techstars Austin, his name is Amos Schwartzfarb. He created this framework to optimize product market fan. He calls it the W3, the who, what, and why. So who are you selling to? What are they buying? And why are they buying it? So if you break the W3 down, first you have the, you know, uh, who are you selling to? So that 
there are a lot of things I'm just kind of summarizing off the top of my head, but you know, what's your target industry and uh, and the underlying target segments, which segments are most important and why, uh, how do they currently behave, who's the decision maker, what traits distinguish those segments. Uh, and and that, that could mean a lot of different things depending on your business. It could be age, gender, geography, company headcount, budget size, whatever is appropriate. Well, and identifying buyers inside of specific companies is even, right. even important, right? I mean, you, yeah, you talk the to decision a business maker. development manager differently than you do a procurement officer, right? And the, the right. different things that you, you need to hit. Yeah, who's the decision maker? What's their title or titles? What are their responsibilities? Uh, things like that. It, the, the more specific, the better. So that's the first W. Who are you selling to? And then you have the, the second one. Uh, what are they buying? And, and note here that uh, this is as opposed to what are you selling? Two different things. You know, like you could be selling a, a whole platform, but customers might only be buying it for like a, a specific feature that solves a big pain point. So what is the actual solution here that customers are buying uh, to solve a problem? And how much are they willing to pay for it and in what manner? Uh, so that that's important, and you know, again, make sure you don't confuse uh, what they're buying versus what you're selling. And then the final W is is why? Why are they buying it? Uh, you know, how does the customer define success from using your product or service? What value or ROI does your solution provide? Is it increased revenue, save time, improved user experiences? So you know, that's. You know, in a nutshell, that's the the W three. Uh, now, Amos has my personal favorite definition of product market fit, uh, which you know to circle back. Essentially, he says that you have achieved the perfect product market fit when you have refined your who, what, and why so precisely that you close the sale a hundred percent of the time, and when you think about product market fit benchmark. that way, yeah, like product market fit suddenly becomes way more complex to achieve. So, um, but it is it is a very precise and methodical way of approaching it. So, but it's important to to understand, and everyone knows it, it's it's a work in progress. It always is. Um, like you said, it is a very high standard. So. I would say just make sure you focus on on fine tuning your W3 and challenging your assumptions when building your prototype. Uh, you know, you're going to make many assumptions, a good a fair amount of them you won't even realize are assumptions are assumptions you're just kind of making them in the back of your head <laughs> naturally, yeah. Yeah, so like first of all, many of them are going to be wrong. Um so you you need to treat Treat it as a, a hypothesis that you keep testing and iterating in the market. You know, see if you're consumer oriented. You know, see if you can gain and retain some users. Uh, if you're enterprise oriented, see if you can close the first sale. And then when you start to get a repeatable process for the fundamental drivers of your business, that's when you're getting closer to product market fit. Yeah, and just to to hit on something you said there. It, that does tie back to your quote, right? Can only connect the dots looking backwards. You're never going to be 100% right as you connect dots forward. So it's important to continue to iterate 
on your product, on your communication to buyers, on your value proposition to buyers, and how you measure success on behalf of your buyers and how they intend to measure success. Yeah, and if as long as you you understand how to iterate properly, it, even with the highs and lows, it, it should generally be an upward slope. So um, again, it you you won't product market fit at least in this context with this framework and definition is is very difficult to achieve. But as long as you're figuring out how to refine the approach, the W three over time, uh, in bits and pieces, as long as you keep doing that, you'll get closer and closer. And looking back, uh, the the journey will suddenly make a lot more sense to you. And at what point would you say a prototype or a minimally viable product ceases to become a prototype, right? I know it's sort of a tough question to pin down, but you know, wh when would you no longer consider something a, a prototype, right? Again, at a high level. I would say... At least this is just me personally. There, there might be definitions out there that disagree. But the way I see it is uh, a prototype is for rapid pre-revenue testing. It, it's it's the, the main purpose of a prototype is to put it out there to some group of users uh, and, and test your hypothesis. Uh, so I think the point where it stops to becoming a prototype is, is when you actually start converting it to meaningful business metrics. So when it becomes a, a real commercial product. Yeah, like user acquisition and retention, sales, uh, whatever it is for, for your business. I think at that point, like you said, when it becomes a real commercial solution that's ready for for normal adoption, whatever that looks like, that's, that's the point where it's, it's past the prototype stage. Yeah, so you move past the beta test, and and now you are ready to do, truly scale the business, be it through marketing efforts or business development or distribution channels, whatever it may be. Yeah, and as I uh, mentioned earlier, the the more repeatability you establish in in your your sales or marketing process, the better. That that's when you start to, That's when it really starts to become a real commercial solution. I'm curious. Uh, thank you for that, Brian. And I'm I'm curious as part of that process, uh, getting to a uh, minimal viable, minimally viable product, an MVP. What's the best way, in your experience, to set up um, a pilot, and how do you do it in a way that that solicits actionable market or or customer feedback? All right. Okay. So first, pilots must be intentional. Do not casually hand off your product for prospects to play with. Uh, that is an actual term, play with. Uh, I've heard that one before. <laughs> uh, like So uh, there, there needs to be a defined agenda, timeline, and end goal or call to action uh, with all of your pilots. So uh, you know what, what I would do is uh, first, find a small batch of prospects who've demonstrated serious interest in your product. So don't accept just anyone. Uh, you want to focus on on a, a target segment. And ideally, it's again, it's not just people who will just casually use the product. It's, it's uh, a group of prospects who are actually serious, who, who believe that this might actually solve their problems and they may be interested in adopting it. Uh, that's the first step. And after that, once you have some batch of uh, of 
potential pilots, then uh, discuss with them what an ideal pilot structure would be. So, and once there's some enough of a soft agreement between you and the others, have an attorney draft a pilot agreement with everything you've discussed in writing. So that I think that's a really critical piece. Pilots need to be in writing, period. But also, importantly, you need to have some path to revenue at the end. And you, I mean, you decide what path is best for your your business. Everyone's different. Um, it, it can mean a, a ton of different things. Like on March first, your subscription will be upgraded to fifteen dollars a month, or uh, by then we will, uh, you know, with approval, we will deploy this solution to X locations, whatever it is. And also, if you can define a price ahead of time, that would be helpful. If if you actually get the the pilot customers to agree to that. Um, but if not, then you know you'll just have to negotiate uh, when the time comes. Just at least time box it, you know. Uh, so uh, that's that's one uh, that's one part. Uh, I think the the agreement should also define what the ongoing pilot process looks like. You know, like how are you going to meet or request uh, feedback, or how how often. Uh, are you going to meet or request feedback? Um, who is the feedback supposed to be from? Is it a specific person? What form is the feedback in? And finally, I, I would also, in the agreement, define any intangible forms of compensation for using your product at a discount. So like if the prospect doesn't want to pay for a pilot, you could negotiate, say, X number of referrals, social posts, specific connections or whatever, um, whatever you feel like will will help support your business best. That needs to be in writing because anyone can casually say, yeah, man, we can totally do X or whatever, you know, and whatever. It, it, mm -hmm. A lot of it, it, it's just, it's just, it's meaningless statements. And in, in the end, you're like, oh, sorry, we couldn't get to it. Well, if you don't have it in writing, then too bad. I had never thought about, you know, actually documenting the parameters of the pilot program. You know, you hear so much from, you know, the, the talking heads on TV or, or, you know, even Facebook ads as they pop up to just just get started, just get going, get your product out into the market and get feedback that way. And you're actually advising directly against that, right? And having a structured program with a highly targeted set of stakeholders to really review and, and uh, you know, uh, credit the product. Yeah, and maybe, I mean, consider that I'm coming from a, an enterprising government that's true mm -hmm. background and i think facebook's approach is it's probably better geared for the consumer oriented startup so so i think it again any advice i say is subject to what what your business actually is so i, I won't claim that it is blanket advice I, I am my background is kind of skewed towards a certain direction but but even with the consumer approach like the, the more specific you can define the the goals and the the pilot user base the better, uh, as as narrow down the focus as, as much as you can reasonably. So in the case of Survivor, you know you wouldn't just want any VR enthusiast to come in and and talk about the product. You want actual police departments and officers using the product in a pilot environment, so they can provide you know more tactical feedback. Yeah, and we we had a a pretty good number of local police departments want to join the pilot program uh, but we you know we only chose four 
And you know, we, from our experience, we wanted to make sure that the the four we chose were uh, were diverse. So they were in different locations, uh, types of municipalities, uh, different department sizes for sure. Uh, we had really small to decently sized. They they all I think expressed the the most interest in in using the product and could could articulate how they were currently training and and why they believe our product is going to take that to the next level. Uh, so in a sense, it was kind of like a pre qualification. So uh, so yeah, in in that case, we we did we focused on police departments and from there narrow to which ones we believe would provide the most productive feedback. Um, and of course, obviously, I'm giving this advice because we did draft a pilot agreement. I, I think it's it's really important uh, to, to have anything in writing if you can, which I think applies to a lot of different things, not just this. But yeah, once the uh, agreement um, is figured out and everyone agrees on it and it's fully executed, just carry out the pilot as planned. So, um, you know, ask your pilot customers specific questions about their usage and their satisfaction, make sure that you're still on the right path to revenue or whatever your end goal actually is. And you know, it it's important to maintain that constant communication because that's going to make the end <laughs> purchase discussion a lot more natural instead of awkward. Uh, you, you don't want an awkward purchase discussion. Uh, trust me. No, certainly not. Absolutely. No, it's it's awful. Okay, here's a pro tip with <laughs> pro tip i love it with uh getting customer <laughs> feedback uh so i would suggest to when you're trying to ask questions uh, to focus on behavioral questions uh, i don't suggest emphasizing open-ended questions like how are you enjoying the product or could you see yourself using this feature uh, the, the issue with these questions is that the answers to these can dangerously misguide you from, uh, you know, b because customers can can say whatever, like, uh, yeah, I think it's going well, or yeah, I think that feature would be useful. Uh, or maybe they just don't want to offend you, like kind of like when you ask your grandma what she thinks about your undercooked pastries. So, you know, you so it, it causes <laughs> you to believe that you're on the right track and you're going to continue building in that direction. And what's going to happen is you're going to end up with a product that nobody wants to pay for, despite the seemingly positive feedback. And so to avoid that or help avoid it, at least, uh, I would suggest questions based on their actual historical behavior. So questions like, how often have you used this since the last time we met? Which modules did you run the most and why? Which ones haven't you been using and why? Have your metrics changed in any way? So basically, ask questions about what customers have already done as opposed to what they think uh, they'll do in the future because the former is much more honest than the latter. Well, and it's much more targeted and it's, it's harder to get around or misguide in the answers to those questions than it is in the, like, like you said, the more open-ended. Right. Yeah. And it, it's, it's pr pretty common that, you know, if, if things are going eh, okay or, or not so okay, oftentimes they'll just kind of give you like a, a high level answer, you know, like, yeah, I, I think it's, it's going fine. We might have an issue here and there, but you know, we're using it and then they won't end up paying for it. 
and you'll be there wondering like, well, why you told me you liked it? Well, <laughs> so it, it's important to ask the right questions because customer feedback is not always genuine. Put it that way. Good to know. All right, so now we're going to move on to the the next section of the podcast, and that is the rapid fire questions. We are going to ask these five questions, the same questions every episode of the guest, and they only have a short time to answer. So, Brian, are you ready? How do you define short time? Like, are we talking three <laughs> it's seconds? Subjective, purely subjective. Okay. All right, I got this. All right. What is the one habit that most contributes to your success? Pursuing goals more aggressively than. Many people would. So, if, if I really care about something or it otherwise excites me, I'll sprint way faster than most others can. That's good to know. What about dinner with three people, dead or alive? Palmer Lucky, uh, founder of Oculus, Andrew Ray. Uh, he makes a YouTube channel called Benjamin Babish. He's the uh, the guy who inspired me to become a home cook. And uh, Elon Musk, because I want to understand his lowest points,、uh, how many of those times he seriously wanted to doubt himself and quit, and what he chose to do instead. Probably the multiple times he was investigated by the SEC. If you had a million dollars to invest anywhere, where would you put it? Game stop. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's funny.、Uh, well, I. Uh, in reality, I'd probably just throw most of it into an ETF and reserve like five to ten percent for startup investments. But I also put some into GameStop because you know, to the moon. <laughs> because why not? What is、I'm、the、here. top skill you look for in your team? Top skill I、uh, look for in the team. Well, skill depends on the role, but the top trait with everyone is integrity, which includes character. So nothing else matters without integrity. As soon as you knowingly compromise on a hire, your culture is destroyed. Lead by example. Agreed. And what are your competitors' greatest opportunities? Our trading use case is still relatively nascent, and and the the market opportunities is quite broad.、Uh, we have a number of adjacent markets and use cases like fire, medical, security. So there are many ways that we and our competitors can grow and make a unique impact. You know, we're on the front lines of law enforcement and defense innovation, which holds, I think, an exciting future for all players. Um, and you know, I, I gotta say, I I do wish them the best、um, because I'm glad that there are others like us who who want to create real solutions in such a controversial and overlooked space. I I, I have to appreciate that and, and reinvent the the police training environment. Right. Well, that's excellent, Brian. Thank you for that.、Um, this has just been、uh, a little bit of a rapid fire and and、uh, kind of a, a quick dip into the startup mindset. But it's clear you've had a lot of experience and put a ton of thought into that. So I know I, I speak for Matt and our listeners、uh, in thanking you for doing this. We heard about your、um, a little bit about your background, a little bit about Survivor itself. Um, the thought and、uh, and the characteristics that went into your selection of a co-founder. I know you tended to get、uh, or, or you got lucky in selecting your co-founder, but it still sounds like it was based on a track record, based on a shared commitment and、uh, communication, including、uh, being able to to talk and and hold each other accountable in the results that you expected from each other. Um, we also heard about your、uh, commitment and your strategy behind product development, including the、uh, I think the W three. Who are you selling to? What are they buying, and why are they buying it? And it's an excellent framework,、um, and I think a detailed framework for anyone looking to kind of productize their idea. And then、um, last is a, a a really great list for setting up product pilots and getting market feedback. 
So thank you for that. Uh, the biggest thing I learned from that discussion is uh, pre-qualify your batch of prospects, have it end in an actionable kind of path to revenue and make sure you have it in writing, if for no other reason than to make sure that you can point to a situation in which you are all uh, on the same page and expectations were set. So thank you very much for that, um, for your time today. Yeah, and, and can I add something real quick? So, you know, I, I use the the W3 framework. And uh, again, I, I tried to mention earlier, but I'll make it extra clear now, it is not my framework. It is Amos's framework. So if you're interested in learning more, he wrote like an incredible legendary sales book called Sell More Faster. Uh, it is, yeah, I think, I'm pretty sure it's endorsed by Techstars. If you want more information there, check it out. But, you know, I just want to make sure I don't claim that. We'll put a link to his book in the in the show notes so everybody can can have easy access to it. He is incredible. Well, if you like what you heard here, please visit growthtoexit.com and shieldslegal.com for more information. Follow us on all of our social media channels for more relevant business content. And if you're interested in learning more about Survivor and what Brian's doing over there, go to survivor.com. And that is S-U-R-V-I-V-R.com. Missing the O? And they'll, uh, they'll, you'll learn how they, that company is rethinking police training to, uh, to better improve public safety. And join us next time where Matt and I will be talking with Chris Elliott, the COO of Novel Coworking, an operator of commercial and co-working spaces across the United States. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, Brian. Thank you.